Welcome to Challenging Paradigm X. Can we thrive in the most adverse circumstances? What role did creativity play in coping with the pandemic? And what psychological impact does the current crisis have on us? My guest today is Neha Chatwani. She's an organizational psychologist who has worked in human resources and organizational development in multiple countries, international organizations and corporations. She's the founder of the Workplace Atelier, a creative and innovative space for actionable, people-focused change management bricolage, focusing on leadership development, transformational team cohesion and organizational agility. She is the author of multiple books, academic papers and articles, including for Forbes magazine and the Peter Drucker Forum. Also, she is a field-based researcher who teaches at multiple universities and she regularly participates in expert dialogue in her field of work. I know Nea for many years now and I always find her perspective inspiring and I'm very happy that she took the time to join me for this episode. So, if you're interested in topics like transformation and psychology, stay tuned. Hi, Nea. It's a pleasure to have you here. And please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Thank you so much for having me. My name is Neha Chatwani and I am an organizational psychologist. How do you describe what you do as an organizational psychologist? Mm -hmm. So I deal with all issues at work, irrespective of who it is that is working, where it is, is irrespective whether it is a single entrepreneur doing social entrepreneurship or individuals, teams, leaders in larger, medium-sized companies working internationally, locally, remotely, or in a sort of a hybrid setup. My main topic is about people at work, how they work, and I hope that through the services I offer, that together we can enable these individuals to be as effective as they can be. And the term that you use for your work, it's a bit different to what I usually know. People call themselves coaches, trainers, they call themselves organization developers. Do you see a difference? Yeah, I like to emphasize the fact that I'm a psychologist. I think there are certain professions that take pride in being who they are defined as a profession. As old-fashioned as that may sound, there's still this uh, sense of pride of being a doctor, a lawyer, a psychologist, or maybe even somebody who is artisan, demands some kind of crafts, right? There's a certain sense of mastery. Not to say that there are not new professions that are developing, but the depth and the history and the tradition of psychology is what I like to bring to the table when I describe myself as an organizational psychologist. And then when I describe how I do things, I like to use other kinds of terminologies. Like I often talk about the fact that I work in an arena of change management bricolage, which is a little bit unusual because people don't necessarily define change management as bricolage. But I think particularly the pandemic has shown us how much we do have to leverage this notion of creativity, which goes beyond simple agility and beyond innovation and improvisation. So okay. I'm, I'm proud of being able to say I'm a psychologist out of tradition, 
but I do use uh, a more cutting edge approach in the way I serve. Okay, and how can we understand that? Cutting edge? I think what's important is that we as human beings, and I, I like the idea of being a psychologist because it puts the human being at the center of our understanding of who we are in the world and uh, work is an expression of this. It's for me just an actionable type of identity. And I think as human beings, we are enormously resourceful to the degree that we're not even conscious of how resourceful we really are. And a lot of the learning we do is very unconscious. So hence my idea or interpretation of bricolage is that we are able to thrive, not only survive, but we are able to thrive in the most adverse circumstances, in the most unusual turn of events, right? That we have that ability to be creative, improvise, be focused, be strategic, learn spontaneously. And that is for me bricolage. And that is what I try and leverage in my work. So when I say I hope to be able to encourage and enable people to be the best they can be, I mean that quite purposefully, right? And I mean that in that context of the best they can be, because it's not the best in terms of gold medals, A plus, number ones in the way we're taught in a conventional sense at school or in performance management, but it's about being effective and the best and impactful as you can be in your circumstance. And this fits into the idea of bricolage. And you talked about creativity. How would you define creativity? Also, maybe in the context of what we've seen over the last uh, year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a tricky question. I think there's a lot of research on how to actually try and define what it actually means to be creative. I, I think that the simplest answer is when you have managed to achieve what it is you set out to express, Okay, it doesn't have to be a goal that you're trying to achieve, but something you're trying to ex express or impact in the most unusual way and transport that information or that feeling to somebody else and encourage them perhaps to go on that learning journey with you on that topic. That for me is creativity. And what uh, role do you think that creativity has played specifically over the last couple of months mm. in the pandemic? Yeah, I think there, you know, there have been people who I think have discovered themselves and their own potential to actually fulfill what it is they set out to need. I think everybody was pushed to a certain limit. And I think there were a lot of people who, of course, had a lot of reactions to what was happening around them. And a lot of people, I think, also took the opportunity to think about how they were living their lives and how they wanted to adjust so I see a lot of people come to me for career design coaching, uh, questioning, questioning what they've done so far in their careers, questioning their jobs, wondering if this is a good time to make a change, which sounds a bit ironic because these are volatile times and it might be more natural to kind of hide in your shell if you have one to hide in. And yet I'm actually experiencing quite the opposite. I'm experiencing a lot of people approaching me saying, I think that I maybe have not been as happy or as contented as I've pretended to be. And this is a good time to perhaps explore, right? And I think that's true on an individual level. And I think it's also very true for teams that are going to likely return to the workplace. And I think the, uh, the idea of going back to what we know is, well, it's actually ridiculous because there's no such thing as going back in time. That just doesn't exist as a concept. So we're not going back to normal. We're going back to what some people are calling a new normal, which 
okay, is a terminology I can go with, I guess. But I think we all realize that go, even going back to work is going to be di a different place, a uh, different attitude, a different leadership will be needed. We cannot unlearn what we've been through now. And um, these are really exciting times in that respect at the workplace. Aside from, you know, the entire environment, obviously, you know, pivoting towards, you know, better use of technology and, and at the same time, the backlash of what does this mean in terms of well-being. Um, yeah, so I think this is a very exciting time to work in the arena of work. And so you talked about uh, a lot of people coming to you now about career. Do you have the impression that this crisis has also triggered kind of people questioning the purpose they're working for, their meaning, the meaning of life, things like that? Mm -hmm. Can uh, you elaborate a bit on yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it has been a very unusual setup, I think, for most people. And it's not correct to speak of simply working from home or remote working in the context of the pandemic. We have to remember that it was more than that because the entire household was at home, which I think is not always the case when you do home office once a week, so to speak, right? Um, and not only was the entire household at home, but the entire society was at home, like school was at home, right? So it wasn't working from home, it was bringing your office home, basically, and bringing in all the other institutions. And then knowing in the lockdown that there was no way out. I mean, we all had to kind of stay at home. There was no opportunity to go out and meet people, have a drink or have lunch with somebody. So it was a very unusual situation. And I don't think it's fair to call this uh, working from home or remote working or home office in the conventional sense that we knew it. It added a whole different pressure dimension. And I think for many people in the beginning, it was actually a very positive experience. And maybe it stayed that way as well, because they finally saw their families, they finally had time to do things at home. We certainly know there was a lot of renovation going on. And, uh, you know, um, a lot of companies did very well, of course, providing the products that were needed. New sofas were being bought, walls were being painted, etc. People were decorating their homes. A very introverted kind of activity. But this also means, of course, that people start wondering, am I living the life I really want to live? Is everything in place where it should be? And this is a question of work-life balance. And having said that, I've always found the term very strange because it implies that work and life are two different entities that we somehow need to balance. And I find that in my conversations, people are beginning to say, well, you know, shouldn't they be linked in a different way? And shouldn't it be more holistic? You use the word purposeful. Shouldn't it make more sense? Can we not design this in a different way? And it's interesting, but this is, you know, for some years, futurists have been talking about the upcoming gig economy. And, and so it's kind of interesting. People are now beginning to say, how do I design my own careers? How do I design my own jobs so that I can actually have all of those factors in where I need them? Right. So how do I provide for interesting work, security, learning, time for my kids, time for myself, etc.? Okay, and what, what's what's the magic answer to that from your perspective? <laughs> well, if I had that one, I would be writing a bestseller, I think. But I don't think I have a magic answer. I think the answer is different for everybody. Okay, and that's important. So I, I really believe people need to spend some time just asking themselves those questions. And I think the pandemic has given us an opportunity to do that, mainly because I think we've all taken up, you know, the ancient hobby of going for a walk. 
people used to do this, right? They used to go promenade somewhere. Uh, and this was what people did. And they walked and they talked and they philosophized. And in the lockdown, this was basically the only thing you could really do is go for a walk. And I see the link between, you know, people going for walks and reflecting. Reflecting with themselves or reflecting with one other significant person they're allowed to go walking with. And this, is, I think, is what has triggered the revival. And the answers are very individual. But it's the yeah. questions that are more important, I think, than the answers at this point. So which questions did you ask yourself when you were going for walks during the pandemic? Yeah, so for me, it was a very interesting experience, too, of course, because I, uh, I'm actually an introvert in many ways. And I really enjoyed the beginning of the lockdown, to be very honest. So I enjoyed the fact that there were no social obligations and that I was able to just concentrate on the few projects I was working on. And I had plenty of work. The weather was fabulous and we were able to get out. It was March, springtime. So I really enjoyed the walking. The walking is um, a large part of my daily routine anyway. So, um, and we've been on a walk together too, I think, right? So, uh, yeah, so um, this was important to me. But what was, what was more the shadow side of the lockdown for me was that I um, take care of my father, who is an elderly gentleman at 92. And uh, I was kind of confronted with how do we really see elderly people in society And uh, I struggled enormously with the recommendation that they should be isolated because they were a vulnerable group. And I, um, and I felt this wasn't the right approach. I actually felt that they would need more attention, more human attention, um, and not be isolated. And so that, that was, so one of my learning journeys during this whole pandemic was how do we cater to the needs of a very specific group in society? And I was also um, interested in understanding how society views them, right? Uh, I think a lot of talk about children in school, not so much talk about elderly people, except that they should somehow be isolated, uh, which I think was detrimental psychologically. So why do you do what you do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I don't really believe that, that we plan to do what we do necessarily, but I think, and this is true for me, uh, driven by a certain interest or curiosity. And I think that I was driven by the curiosity to understand people and appreciate them, understand to appreciate them, perhaps is the right sentence, right? Uh, I've always been, I was very shy as a child, so that made me very much a listener and not a speaker, which many people don't believe. <laughs> many people who know me now don't quite believe that, but I actually had to learn to speak publicly. And as a child, I was a very shy person and very much a listener. And I was very curious about what motivated people to say and do what they were saying and doing, right? So I think that drove me into psychology. Um, it was the closest thing I could think of studying that would perhaps you know, um, enlighten me on that subject. And I think it's been a learning journey ever since. And I think that's why I do what I do. I um, actually started my career in clinical psychology, uh, which was extremely demanding for me. So I moved into the more, uh, more conventional area of psychology. And um, I'm just fascinated by people's motivations, the complexity of their feelings, the interpretation of 
their own interpretations of what is happening around them uh, and how they react to it. For me, it's an endless learning journey. And even and every client I work with, I learn with this client. It is um, this is how I see my work. It's we're doing this together, and we're both, of course, in different seats. But I always hope the client is in the driving seat, and I'm just kind of reading the navigation map and figuring out how else we can get to where we want to go, and maybe even asking the question: Is that really where we want to go? So. Um, that's that's the way I see myself very much in that facilitator, navigator, curiosity role. And I hope that that's how I live my life, too. Um, I think if, if I might add, I think it comes from my biography. So I, I'm Indian origin, um, but I have grown up in different countries in the world. And I think many people understand global a global nomad as somebody who has at least grown up in their own culture and then moved on. But I don't really have my own culture in many ways. Um, it is already a collection of different things. And hence, I find it very interesting. And I think I also command the ability to flip, to understand different kinds of people in different contexts and find it perfectly okay, even if it seems very paradoxical. So I think this this whole attitude towards people and that they are allowed to be various things um, and feel compl complementary and paradoxically about certain situations comes very naturally to me because it reflects very much my own biography. Okay, so would you say that your heritage and being a world nomad makes you have a different perception of the world of people? I think it simply enables me to flip, so to switch sides and see different perspectives more easily. That's all. I don't know whether it by default means that I would have a broader horizon, but I think it's very difficult for me to just have one perspective on something and not appreciate a multiple number of perspectives. Having said this, I also have to say that I am very grounded in certain principles, which I think are basically humanitarian principles. And I, was, and I was thinking a couple of months ago where these would come from, and I realized that they actually come from my mother, who attended a Mahatma Gandhi school in her youth. She belonged to the freedom generation in India, if you like. So the, the, genera the first generation after freedom or independence was obtained from the British. And she was a great advocate of Mahatma Gandhi's teaching, which is very principled. Right? It's very humanitarian, but it's very principled. And I think that's important because it gives it a rooting. So it's not me saying I have this broad horizon and everything goes and that's fair enough. I understand the various points of view, but I do have my own compass, so to speak. So please tell us, uh, you, you said you've made a lot of experiences in different countries, lived in different countries. So that had a major impact. Was there also some turning point or turning points in your life that you feel had a major impact on what you do today? Yeah, I mean, one of the stories I, I like to tell, and I think this is where I became socially aware, if you like, it was I was in, in the village of my grandmother in rural India, maybe about eight or nine years old. And my mother had sent me off to the pharmacy to buy her aspirin. And I, I remember going into the pharmacy and there was a gentleman there and he was purchasing one aspirin. That was, you know, like one tablet. That was basically what he could afford, you know, and he was putting some coins on the counter. 
And I remember, you know, as a kid, as a child thinking, that is so impressive, like on so many levels. It was the first time that I realized, you know, people just don't go to the pharmacy and buy a box of aspirins, right? That is just not accessible for everybody. You know, there, there were a series of different events. And I think particularly rural India, you know, visiting my grandmother had many triggers in that at that age that influence the way I see the world and how relative and paradoxical things can be. So in those days, we would have floods of refugees who would come into her village because, you know, the whole geography had been flooded with monsoon rains. So everybody who was living around that village would come into the village because their huts had been swept away by the rains. And um, I always thought it was so paradoxical that we had so much water everywhere. And grandma would always say to me, you know, go out and give everybody fresh water to drink. Such a basic thing, right? A very Samaritan thing to do. And I always felt that was such a major paradox, but I also understood how important it is to serve, basically, to serve and to understand and appreciate the resources you have. So yeah, I guess maybe that was also, you know, the beginnings of not only humanitarian thinking, but environmental thinking, social responsibility, all the things that we talk about now in a very sort of highfalutin tone. But these are kinds of childhood experiences that I think were very influential. And then just sort of fast forwarding here, I think the death, the sudden death of my sister, who was 41 years old at the time of her death, was a major pivotal event as well, and encouraged me to do what I wanted to do with my life, particularly professionally, but also is the positive driving force uh, behind most of my work, where I like to encourage people to feel that they are doing the best that they can do or having the best impact that they wish to have in their own lives. Right. Thank you for being so open. Um, yeah, my experience with uh, traveling in some countries that are not industrially developed as our country, countries in the West are is also like while I was traveling, just the mere fact, I mean, you talk about water and, and medicine, like aspirin, my, where I felt this type of, we take so many things as granted, was just sitting in the bus. I mean, where I live and you live, it's for us, if the bus comes late five minutes, people freak out. And it's so, so normal for them that everything has to work and function. Mm -hmm. But this is just the, the reality of for a very uh, small minority of, of the world. And I, I always wondered, so I was traveling in between 2006 and eight in multiple countries around the world. And I always thought then, what happens if there's a big war? I mean, how will we, people be able to cope? And in the West, because they're not used to crisis. And now we have a big crisis. It's different. It's not a war. And we only had a shortage of toilet paper for some time. But other than that, in the West, at least, we didn't have shortage of too many other things. At least, again, where I live, maybe I'm doing wrong to people from other countries. So, yeah, I find it very interesting. Uh, on the one hand, gratitude. And on the other hand, what, what we generally take as granted. And it did also have a major impact on my understanding of the world and of our beings. So, yeah, what is your impression of the current situation and the crisis, what it is doing to us and on the psychological level? I mean, obviously, there's more depression and stress and, and fear, but maybe you can give a broader outlook of your impression when you look from your experience. 
and uh, maybe also about business and economy wise, mm -hmm. if you want to share something on that. Yeah, so thank you for putting the word gratitude out there. I think that's a that's really a big word. And um, it's true that I, I, I will never forget how grateful those people were that I gave water to. And that that really remained with me because, I, you know, they would always say, Oh, thank you, child, bless you. And I kept thinking, well, I'm already blessed. I, I, I you know, I was so overwhelmed by their gratitude. And I think that let me answer the COVID situation using that word. So I, I think one thing we would probably all agree on is that the pandemic has actually showed us where the cracks in society really are. I think all the social issues that we were well aware of, including poverty and violence, discrimination, inequalities, have shown up again, right? They're pretty marked, very ugly, and very clear on the global level, the grab for vaccines from rich countries and the lack of long-term thinking on the fact that we need to share them and we need to find a global approach to a global pandemic, I think we, we failed is maybe a simple way of putting it, right? So we even struggled in the European Union to put our act together, and that's only one small part of the world, right? I think there probably are more positive examples outside Europe, but on a global level, I think we can safely say everybody ran for themselves, and, and we found it difficult to collaborate. That's very telling, but it's what we know. I, fascinating about the, the pandemic for me is that for the first time, I think, in a long time in history, the entire world was captured by a phenomena which was obvious, and so were rich and poor alike. And I think that's why it gained so much attention, because there was no telling who this virus was going to get to next, and it could be a prominent person, or it could be somebody at the end of the supply chain, so to speak, right? And of course, prominent rich people will have access to the best medical care, but even that wasn't a guaranteed lifesaver, so to speak. So I think it was really an enormous magnifying glass for all of the issues that we know exist in the world. I would hope that this would be an opportunity to rethink our socioeconomic systems, the distribution of wealth in particular, and also specifically the way we work because I, I don't really believe, looking ahead, that we will need to do the nine to five routine that we have been drilled to do. And if we look further than that, it should actually be an opportunity to rethink educational systems, because this is where uh, the foundation is. So I'm seeing it on several levels here, right? Political collaboration as well on a global level. Unfortunately, I'm not too optimistic. I, I see us kind of rebounding because there is a, a great yearning for the normal, the way we knew it, which personally I don't think was very normal anymore. And, and the 21st century, the grapple to apply old 20th century models in the 21st century. Maybe that's a normal reaction, just a rebound, right, as we further investigate different concepts, which could help make the world a little bit more egalitarian and help us tackle major social issues, but also environmental issues and, and other discrepancies that we face. But I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I, I wish I could say to you that I think it's going to go in a certain direction, but I feel that we're still at a watershed. And if I look at the 20th century, I think we can say it maybe took the first 50 years to organize the last 50 years, right, including two world wars. 
Now, people like to feel that through digitalization, we are much faster than we were. I'm not going to pass judgment on it. I don't know whether we are faster. I think we're beginning to realize that we may have left our souls behind somewhere and that people simply need uh, a certain amount of time to readjust. But I would expect that we will still be seeing a lot of turmoil looking ahead because we're only 2021. So if I look at the 20th century, I would say, oh, we may have another 30 years of adjusting, or at least 20 years of adjusting before we come up with a paradigm for the 21st century. We're, we're not there. I mean, there, there are so many amazing ideas out there, for sure. I mean, in that sense, I'm not pessimistic. There are a lot, there's a lot of good thinking going on, and there's a lot of good experimenting going on. But it's not mature yet. Yeah, we may see the tail of it still, you and I. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, hopefully. What I find interesting in this situation is, so I, I, or let's put it a different way. I might have a bit of a optimistic outlook. And the reason why is, so you talked about people want to go back to the old normal, which is quite natural. They're used to that. This is like people who have a crisis in a relationship, for example, although the relationship is toxic, uh, they rather stay in a relationship and solve the toxic, uh, well, part of the issues and still stay in the toxic relationship rather than uh, to break out and do something new. And so I've kind of, I mean, I'm sure people would criticize me if I, I, I compare the world crisis with a relationship. So I'll put it a different way. There's this term of uh, spiritual emergency which uh, most people might think when I bring it up now, this is some uh, new age mumbo jumbo, but actually it is a diagnosis in DMS four, I think, or mm -hmm. three, it was entered. It was coined by Stanislav Grof and his wife. And it's about uh, deep, deep crisis people usually have when there is a deep shock in their life, whatever it is. So uh, Grof defines, I think, 12 or 13 different cases when this happens. So often it's connected when someone very close passes away or uh, something similar happens. Anyway, so, and one of the things in spiritual emergency is that it is very similar to psychosis. So it's really hard to tell the difference between psychosis and spiritual emergency. And there is People, I, I'm not sure anymore if uh, Groff actually talked about this like this, but Sylvester Weich, which is one of my, my teachers, uh, he said, actually, sometimes it is also psychosis, but then it becomes spiritual emergence or something along, along these lines. So I'm telling all of this. I believe, and I really mean it, that we as a humanity are in this psychosis with, you talked about that we have in the 21st century, a system that was built in the 20th century or that worked for the 20th century or maybe even earlier. So, and people are so used to that system, although it's obvious mm -hmm. that it's killing us. I mean, we have this climate crisis. So there's people saying it's not man-made, but still we can see that there is this crisis. So let's say even if it wasn't man-made, we still have this crisis. It's killing us. So we need to find a solution. And it's very likely that at least to some extent it is man-made. And then it goes back to the system that we live in. And there's so many other problems with poverty in, in society, inequality, or, and so on and so forth. And most of those problems you can track back to the system. But still, people want to go back to the old normal. This is, for me at least, would be really interesting, interested to know how you understand the situation. It is like a psychosis. 
And why do we want to go back to the situation? We could actually use this situation to elevate to something mm -hmm. different. And um, so to make the long story short, I really believe that we are in this global psychosis for many years now because we work with a system that doesn't serve humanity anymore. It serves certain people, but not humanity. And we want to go back to this. And at the same time, the pandemic is like the spiritual emergency that when you now go back to the level of individuals, usually leads people to elevate to a different level of their existence because they, they often change what they do in life very deeply. And I do, although I'm not saying this will happen for granted, I believe that there is this opportunity. So when we look at the whole situation right now from this perspective, then uh, it's just year one of the global spiritual emergency. And to break out of this psychosis, it needs a little bit more time. And uh, let's see what happens in the next mm -hmm. 10 years. So this is how I look at it. I think there's a, yeah, there's always an opportunity to break out. I personally think we're in a permanent state of psychosis, if you like. I mean, there is always a phase that we are in. But what I am a little bit critical of is the idea that the current situation is much worse than any other situation we, as humanity, have faced before in history. It's kind of a part of the game of life cycle, that there are always going to be pandemics, quote unquote, in whichever format. And it amuses me a little bit that we feel as the human race, and I think this is kind of the fundamental point, that we are at the center of the universe and that, you know, things are either man-made or not. And depending on the system we choose, that is going to make the difference. I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest challenges we face is we tend to think of the good old times whenever they were because nobody can actually tell me when the good old times were. And if we look back into our history, terrible things have happened. I mean, actually, the, the 20th century was the age of humanism. This is when they coined human rights and so on. And we're kind of stuck in a rut with that now, because we're kind of thinking, is this still relevant? Or can we go back to slavery? I don't know. Anyway, but the fact is, through these discussions, we always put humanity at the center of the discourse. And it amuses me because I think humanity is only part of a system that is called nature and is only a very small part of this system. And when we look at nature, what do we see? We see effective use of the resources that are available. We see the innate focus and purpose to thrive, right? To grow, to live, to survive. And we see a constant struggle for equilibrium of balancing, right? It's all about balancing. I mean, watching a tree grow is a perfect example of that. Where resources are not available, the leaves will fall. Where there's a rock, the root will grow around it somehow. But it's always about the purpose, the striving to the sky for the sun, right? And it this stays. As simple as this metaphor may be, this is the metaphor of nature, basically. And we tend to, as the human race, want to take ourselves out of that paradigm out of that equation and say, no, but we determine the system, but we don't determine the system is my answer to that. So in a sense, what I would like to see more of going ahead is the recognition of the fact that it's irrelevant, whether we have caused the environmental change or not, or whether it exists or not. But what is relevant is how are we going to, we collaborate as human beings, seeing that we share this environment and the resources how are we going to collaborate in order for us all to thrive equally?
as a human race? I think that is an interesting question, right? And I think in a way, that is the question that has always been asked every time there has been a system change. And I actually believe that the capitalistic system that we have is has been built in good faith. I mean, the idea was that there would be a wealth distribution. It didn't happen because many things were not considered and human beings are not easily put into an economic model. This is not the way we tick, which is why I find it interesting as a psychologist, right? Are we naturally so competitive? Are we naturally so greedy? Um, who told us that this is the way we naturally are? This is what I challenge, right? Is it not, not a result of socialization rather than a natural innate behavior? This is a question that we won't be able to answer, of course. But on a very practical level, I agree with you. We're, we're at the beginning of a, of a change cycle, another change cycle, and the change is innate to who we are as the human race in, in the context of the place we, we live and work in. So maybe it's not a question of being you know, optimistic or pessimistic. Maybe those are not the words that we need to use in our discourse. Maybe it's more a question of perspectives, right? And what I think is causing some of the disruption and this the pandemic has brought to the forefront is that we have over the years told ourselves we can control. We are in control. We are in the driving seat as the human race. And now comes a little virus and tells us no. And all the science in the world has not really been able to explain why is it that an eight-year-old somewhere can be infected and either be asymptomatic or simply recover, and a 25-year-old who's seemingly healthy contracts COVID and passes away. All the science in the world has not been able to explain some of the paradoxes we have seen yet. Maybe there will be an explanation, but at least to date, I haven't read anything that's convincing, right? This is an interesting lesson in itself. Do we need to learn more that we don't control? And when you travel through the world, there are peoples and there have been peoples in the history of humanity who have spoken and lived the art of letting go, which is something we don't have anymore in our societies. This, I think, is an interesting point. This Now, you know, we could go into this whole discussion of burnout, depression. The pictures we're shown as individuals of who we have to be and how we have to be is linked very much to this. Right? This, I think, is a central question. So elaborating on all of what you've said now, what do you think are the paradigms that really need to be challenged today in your fields? in the world? Yeah, I tend to be very much focused on the way we work because I, I feel very much that work is an expression of identity. It's also not work in the sense of I work to earn a living, but I, I work to express myself, to make a contribution to my environment, to, to leave a legacy, to, to be in a collective, right? Because often it's not an individual contribution that makes a difference, but it's a collective contribution, whether it's simultaneous or successive. And I think we need to look at this central paradigm of work. And for me, work is also about learning. And I like to think that life is a learning journey. That is what life is. And life is not about accumulating uh, material wealth, but about learning and accumulating wisdom which then you are able to share. And I find it very encouraging, especially in my area of work, that narratives have become a, a big trend. They've resurfaced, if you like, because narratives and telling stories have always been 
basic learning mechanisms and transporting content and mostly it's aged wise people though i don't think age and wise necessarily go together but they can do so i think one of the one of the biggest things we need to look at is how we learn informally formally how we share what we learn this will help us deal with all kinds of disruption that's kind of my agility understanding anyway that knowledge and wisdom is at the center point but that we actually have it and that's my bricolage. We actually have it available to us. We just need to leverage it. And I think that will also impact the economic social systems, right? Because it's about inclusion. If you really want to build wisdom, you need to include. If you want to innovate, you need the diversity. You need So it actually all hangs together with this whole central idea of how do we learn and how do we share. That I think looking ahead, I would. I'm actually quite optimistic about it in the sense that through the digitalization of learning, we actually have the ability to go beyond what we were able to go until now, with all the caveats. But I still, and you maybe also, still remember as a child, you know, when you asked a question, we couldn't Google around or send an email to the professor or whatever it was. You kind of went to your grandfather and asked him and he might have a story and, and then you maybe got a dictionary from the library or, you know, if you were lucky enough to have access to all this, the process was very different, right, from asking questions. And today, you know, within seconds, you can have a whole array of information, data, opinions. There are caveats. But, I mean, we see a phenomenal, I see a phenomenal opportunity also in this. So when you think about, from your personal perspective, of what we want to learn, having in mind that we want to tackle the biggest challenges we have as a humanity ahead of us over the next 20 or 30 years, what is your answer, what we really want to learn to be able mm -hmm. to develop? So I share, I think I share the outcome, you yeah, know, I, I share the outcome of, I think, much research on this topic now, looking ahead, what should education look like? I mean, where is the focus of World Economic Forum has a lot of work on skilling and so on. For me, it's not about content, it is going to be about emotional skills, in fact. So I'm taking a U-turn a little bit from what I said, because I've been talking about sharing content and creating wisdom around that. But the sharing part of the wisdom is going to be around what we think is emotional intelligence, however we define that. And I think this also links with the pandemic. So what we also have realized in the pandemic, we have difficulties being on our own. We don't cope well with isolation. We don't cope well with change. However, I think human beings have the ability to do so. And in fact, I think a certain level of loneliness is important for reflection, for wisdom. We have low levels of tolerance. We tend to use retail therapy, I think, to get through a lot of things, which is why Amazon did so well. And everybody was dying to go shopping, please, urgently. So either they wanted their entertainment and go on a cruise or they wanted to go shopping. It shows a lot about people and how they cope with situations. We need to learn to be uh, more self-content, more, more gratitude, more reflection, more appreciation. And yes, these things can be learned. They are skills, they can be learned. Uh, people have aptitudes, of course, and personalities that are more inclined, but at the end of the day, these are socialization skills. And this is where I think the focus of learning needs to be in the future. And the, you know, the whole topic of well-being and organizations stems from this, you know, and I have had these personal experiences in my career where 
you know, I have taken sabbaticals to take care of my terminally ill mother and have been told, you know, if you take time off now, this is kind of the end of your corporate career, which it then also was in many ways. These are the kinds of things that I think should not be happening. This is where we need to close that gap between balancing work and life. Um, you know, so this is where we need to learn that the technology is, is going to keep developing. I mean, this is clear. The science is going to keep developing. We benefit from it. We have benefit from it. You know, we're living longer, healthy lives. It's amazing, actually. But we need to live longer, healthy lives in our spirit and soul as well as in our body. So this is where the focus should be. So my final question is, if you imagine 100 years from now, people looking back at your impact, your mm -hmm. contribution, what is it that you want people to say about you or think of at your contribution? My personal contribution? Okay, you're putting me on the spot here. So yeah, <laughs> pretty well. My personal contribution 100 years from now. Well, as you know, I write and I have authored a book and contributed to various sources like, like Forbes and also to various chapters. So maybe 100 years from now that will be unearthed if there's still archaeology in that sense, or maybe it will be found in an electronic library somewhere. And I hope that's a piece of history for somebody to smile and say, you know, how naive were they 100 years ago that they really believed these things or they really thought this thing or how old fashioned is this model? Or maybe even how inspiring is this model that they had 100 years ago and we can still use some of it. So yeah, aside from the fact that I hope to enable individuals that I work with, there is also this written material of my research and of my thinking, which, which I hope is a bit of a legacy as well. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the conversation. It was a pleasure. And maybe another time we'll continue this conversation on my podcast. Pleasure was entirely mine. Thank you. Thank you for staying tuned for this edition of Challenging Paradigm X. If you like this episode with Nea Chatwani, feel free to share it with your community so Nea's message gets spread even further. In the show notes, you will find the links to her work. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. Next week, we are up with another edition of Challenging Paradigm X. Until then, I wish you a great week.